Welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part one of our conversation with Ariel Fristo. Ariel is the founder and artistic director of Out of Hand Theater, and she spoke with us from her home right here in Atlanta. Ariel Fristo, welcome to AIJCast. Thank you, Marthame. It's so nice to be here. Let's start talking about theater. What is it that drew you to theater in the first place? Uh, well, my parents met at Boston Children's Theater when they were in high school. Wow. I have always been around the theater. My father was the artistic director of a theater company in Boston, and then he moved to Atlanta to be the artistic director of Theater Emory. Hmm. So I went to Emory because... As a professor's kid, you could do it for free, which right. is amazing. Right. And told my father that I absolutely was not going to do theater. I was going to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. That was silly because there was no way I could stay away from it. And I quickly realized that it was just doing a disservice to me mm. <laughs> to pretend like I really wanted to do anything else. What was it that drew you so magnetically? Well, so I was raised atheist. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Uh, theater was as close a thing as I had to a religion Mm. as a kid. It was the thing that my family was immersed in. And being part of a show can be kind of a religious experience. There is this amazing connection that happens among a a group of artists who are working together Mm -hmm. to put on a show. And then this magic of being on stage and the moments when everything goes right and the moments when new and unexpected things happen, that is spiritual, Mm. I think. So that was kind of Mm. the magic that got me and that I couldn't stay away from. So it really was this spiritual, mysterious, beyond words kind of experience that kept you coming back. Yeah. And it really is partly the camaraderie, the communion of artists working on something together. You know, so many artists, I mean, I guess visual artists in particular work alone most of the time, but theater artists, part of the fun is we always get to be together. It's collaboration. Yeah. Let's talk about Out of Hand Theater. So Out of Hand is now celebrating its 20th anniversary. It's been around 20 years. Yeah, coming up this fall, the big celebration. But yeah, this is the year. So what happened 20 years ago that led to the launch of Out of Hand Theater? So when I was in college, I assumed that I would be uh, what's known as a regional theater director, which would mean you would like travel around from theater to theater across the country and direct plays. So I never studied theater administration, which Mm. turned out to be a big mistake (laughs) for my (laughs) life. But I very soon after I got out of college, I realized that auditioning as an actor for people I didn't know, if you got cast working with people you didn't know, having no control over what you were making, the Mm. vision and, you know, why you were making it was just not anywhere near as fun as making something you loved for a cause that you believed in Hmm. with your dear friends. Hmm. And so at the ripe old age of 24 or 25, my best friend, Maya Knispel, and I and a group of other people got together and said, let's form our own theater. And let's not do it the way other people do it. And let's not make traditional theater. And so Out of Hand was born out of that. (laughs) And what makes Out of Hand different? What is it that was that founding vision? So you've, you've hinted at it in terms of a cause but also, you know, having some creative control, at least collaboratively, what is that cause that you talk about? What is that purpose that you talk about? We work at the intersection of art, social justice, and community engagement. 
So we, at this point, we almost never produce what you'd think of as traditional theater mm -hmm. in a traditional theater building, a traditional playhouse. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we do is we bring theater to people and to places where it might not exist otherwise. And we do that in partnership with community organizations and we do it around social justice. Mm. Now and then we go, oh, actually this particular subject matter, this collaboration, the right thing to do is to do a play on a stage in a theater building, you know, but that's almost never the right answer for our work. Mm. We used to do a lot of projects outdoors, like at festivals and in parks and just things that roamed neighborhoods. And now we do a lot in people's homes mm. and actually in places of worship as well. Mm. Not for the past year, not during COVID, sure, but sure, that yeah, will come yeah. back. So that taking the theater out of the theater building and out into other places, has that been part of the DNA from day one or was that something you kind of stumbled into or was it a lovely accident? It's been the DNA since day two, I would say. I think the very first show we put on in 2001 was in a theater. It was at Seven Stages, mm -hmm. which is a really lovely theater mm -hmm. in Little Five Points. Mm -hmm. But in 2002, we did our first show that roamed around a neighborhood and we've been doing things like that ever since. Mm. And you know, part of the reason for that is that if you go to the theater in America, in the vast majority of theaters, the audiences are very white and fairly old mm -hmm. and very well educated. And wealthy And that's as well. lovely, but that's not really who we wanted to make theater for. Mm. There are so many barriers to going to the theater. It's expensive. You have to go at a certain time. You have to go to a certain place. You have to get transportation and maybe child care and... And so we just wanted to remove as many of those barriers as possible and go, mm. let's shake it up and let's do things on a different schedule in different places and find ways to bring art to people where they're already gathered or where they feel like gathering and not ask them to come to this temple. Right, right. Yeah, and in fact, most of our programs are completely free to the public. Wow. Traditional theater business people look at our, our budgets and our plans and they're like, what? What are you doing? How? What? You don't have ticket revenue? Like, how do you make this work? But we have managed to make it work, and here we are going to celebrate our 20th birthday. Wow. Let's talk about about 10 years in to Out of Hand Theater. As you said, you were raised as an atheist, and theater had become kind of your religion. It was the pageantry. It was the worship service, the liturgy, so to speak. But about 10 years ago, you had an experience of church that has change that quite dramatically. Yeah, so I have a nine-year-old birth daughter, and when she was a baby, my husband said, Ariel, he was a devout atheist as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> although he had mm -hmm. been raised in religion and I had not. Right. And he said, Ariel, I think I really need some kind of religion. Would you come to church with me? Would you try this out? Church is the only thing I've done before, he said. So, hmm. you know, let's start there. And I said, okay, you know what? I don't have anything to lose. Like I've never, I haven't really had a bad experience with it. I just haven't had any experience with it. So we went to what is now our church, All Saints Episcopal Church in Midtown. And we went there because my husband's nephew was a staff singer in the choir. And mm -hmm. so we thought, oh, he can go hear John sing. And I was confused. They kept sitting down and standing up and turning yeah. the pages in a book and saying all the stuff that they had memorized and I couldn't follow it. But I loved the sermon. Jeffrey Hoare was the rector there at time. And there was this priest there who's now in DC, this really wonderful woman named Noel. And 
when it was over, we went out and stood in line and shook hands with her. Yeah, yeah. And she said, Ariel Bennett? And I was like, whoa, that has not been my name. In a, that's, you know, is my maiden name, my childhood name. And it turns out we had gone to high school together, but she was a couple years younger than me. So, of course, I had no idea who she was, right. whereas she well, knew perfectly oh, well who course. I was. Right. That's the pecking order of high school. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I said, um, hey, Noelle, could I take you to coffee this week and kind of pick your brain? And she was like, sure. So I took her to coffee and I said, okay, so I'm an atheist. I came to your church. It was nice. Can you kind of give me the lowdown? Like, what would I have to believe in order to go to church here? I don't want, you know, I'd much rather just not have religion than be a liar in church. Mm. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like a good idea. Mm. And I asked her a bunch of questions and I was like, okay, I think I can try it again. And then there was this class, the inquirers class, which I took that, which Jeffrey, the rector taught. Like the church 101 kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And every week I would come in with a hard question, something that I thought, okay, I'm going to ask this. And this week he's going to give me an answer and I'll have to, I'll never come back because this week he will say, no, you firmly have to believe this one thing that I will know that I cannot say that I believe without lying. Hmm. But every week his answers were so much more beautiful and generous and expansive than I expected them to be. And mm. I, so I just kept coming and I kept saying yes. And now it's a, a very firm part of my life. Ariel Fristo on AIJCast. We'll be back to more of our conversation in just a moment, but first a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com where we have a plethora of links to our artists, their news, information, and products. One item I want to highlight for you is Out of Hand Theater's next Equitable Dinner, which is happening on Sunday, March 21st at 5 p.m. The focus that evening is anti-racism and uncentering of whiteness. You can find information about this and so much more right there on our website, AIJCast.com. And now, back to more of our conversation with Ariel Fristo. We pick up that conversation speaking more about her experience of church. I'm wondering if that experience has changed you or was it more of a sense of this was something that I've always felt and known, but I just didn't have the words for it or a combination of the two? Um, I guess a combination. You know, I feel very at home in religion in mm. a way that I did not expect. And a lot of it, I just go, yes, I, of course. Why aren't people saying this more often? Mm. I've always thought this, mm. but it has also changed me deeply. You know, for the first 10 years of my work at Out of Hand, we were not specifically social justice oriented. Hmm. And even since then, we've done several collaborations with scientists. We were really more focused on let's find a subject matter that is of deep interest and importance to hmm. us and our community. Let's find an organization to partner with who we can bring our skills as artists to and can serve them in some way, but also thereby heighten the value of the arts mm. and build more audiences for the arts. But those things were not exactly justice oriented. What were some of those subjects? You mentioned working with scientists. Oh yeah, we've done a bunch of fun ones with scientists. So this one we did called Group Intelligence. It was with an international center that's headquartered at Georgia Tech. There's also Emory scientists involved that study molecular evolution, so how molecules self-assemble to create the structures that lead to the emergence of life. Mm. 
So what we did was we created this event that from the outside looked like a flash mob and was created by the participants in outdoor spaces, but where you were hearing, you'd like download a track and you'd listen to it and you would actually hear this story that gave you instructions to model Mm. molecular self-assembly on a human scale. Wow. You know, one of the big principles in molecular self-assembly is diversity. If you Mm. don't have enough diversity, you can't survive Mm. on a molecular level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that it used things like um, people's height and gender and, you know, different things to sort of group people Mm -hmm. and then create all of these different patterns. And we actually would film it from the air. So we've got some neat aerial video of it. So we did that. We did one, a collaboration with this very famous scientist named Franz de Waal, who's at Emory, who studies chimpanzees and other great apes to learn more about the human ape, um, since we are great apes as well. And he witnessed these events in this chimpanzee colony that played out like a Shakespearean tragedy, where there was a king. and The alpha male kind of thing. The alpha male, yeah, who sort of is in charge of everybody else. And then there was this pretender to the throne who wanted to overthrow him, and this old chimp who got together with a young one to overthrow the king. And the women all had to back one or the other, and they murdered the king. And then the young one who had murdered the king and the old one, they sort of fell out. And the young one drowned himself in the moat. So chimpanzees can't swim and they know that. And so their colony in the zoo is actually separated from the rest of the zoo just by water, not by a fence because they don't go in the water because they know they'll drown. And he actually went into the water and drowned. Wow, that (laughs) is Shakespearean. Oh my gosh. So we did this in a human zoo and we actually never said concretely that they were chimpanzees or that they were humans and yeah. we play them in the, with this physical style that was like sort of halfway Ambiguous, in between. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. The things that you mentioned, I mean, I think all of them have an impact on social formation as well, the things that we're talking about, but you began to see, and faith helped to inform this for you some, the more of an emphasis on social justice work without a hand. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing was our kids program. So, you know, at this time, we I started going to church when my daughter was a baby. So she was growing up as I was growing into this life of being a churchgoer. And uh, they kept talking in church about your neighbor and loving your neighbor. And and I kept thinking, well, who's my neighbor? It's <laughs> like, almost biblical a question. Is, yeah. <laughs> oh, so we live in um, the Martin Luther King Historic District in the Old Fourth Ward. And our local elementary school is Hope Hill on Boulevard, which is actually on the property of the King Center, and which almost exclusively still, but even more so at that time, serves the kids who live in Bedford Pine, which is the low-income housing like around Boulevard. And uh, we decided to send our white daughter there for pre-K. And she was the only white girl Mm. in her grade level, (laughs) which was a little bit hard for her, but a really interesting experience for her and for us as well. And I really fell in love with that school. And I started, you know, trying to help them writing some grant applications for them and volunteering. And I thought, oh, these are my neighbors. Mm. These kids are my neighbors. And I thought, well, you know, I'm an artist. Like, what can I do? And I don't, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm running a nonprofit with very few um, employees in a tiny budget and I don't have that much time. What can I possibly do to help 
to love as a verb, mm-hmm. not just love as a feeling, mm-hmm. my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so I developed these programs called Creative Kids, which out of hand is now still running um, many years later. Before the pandemic, I think we were in six or seven schools the year before the pandemic where we do free in-school and after-school programs, some of which are closely modeled on what the Alliance programs do, except for that they are free and they are at your school and they're coordinated with the days when there are late buses. And so, you know, you can have a similar experience to what I pay hundreds of dollars for and drive my child to Midtown in rush hour traffic, but it's free and it's at your school. Mm. You've already hinted at some of this where you see kind of the intersection of theater and faith and some of the things you've talked about, collaboration, building something together, this kind of mysterious, this liturgy. Where else do you see the intersection? If not in general, for you, where where do those things come together? Very personally for me, the reason that we turned our work so exclusively really to social justice was that I thought when you go to the theater, whether or not it's in a traditional theater building, you can have these very cathartic and moving experiences, which you can also have in church. Mm. And I'm sure in many kinds sure. of worship experiences, not just Christian church. And there's something about stories, which are used both in theater and religion, and empathy and emotion and um, going through emotion through someone else that sort of makes your heart bigger and Mm. makes you, you know, more able to see life through other people's eyes and less selfish. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I know that power intimately what can I do with that power? Mm -hmm. And that's the reason that I thought it's, you know, I still love doing collaborations with scientists. Honestly, you Mm -hmm. know, we did one just the year before the shutdown where we got to design the big launch event for the Atlanta Science Festival at the first center at Georgia Tech. But knowing that power, that storytelling and emotions and the experience of a live performance like that can have, what's the best use that I can turn it to? And I think the Mm. best use that I can turn it to is poverty and racism is Mm. addressing those two evils. I Mm. think that, you know, there are lots of other problems in the world, but for me, those are the two that stick out that call to me the most. That's powerful. I love that. I'm also wondering if there's a, some connection for the performer, for an actor, there's a connection for somebody who's acting uh, between faith and theater. Yeah, you know, so I believe this is this ancient Greek idea. This is something my husband talks about frequently, that between an actor and an audience, you can have sort of a straight line of you're communicating with them and they're sort of feeding back to you. But between an actor and an audience, you can also have a different communication, which goes up to heaven Mm. and then comes back down to the audience and brings the divine into the experience of theater. Wow. That's incredible. I also love this idea of, I mean, the power of story to transform. That to me is when art is at its best, it changes you somehow, makes you think about something, feel that empathy. And I think that that connection of story, of effective storytelling, of empathetic storytelling is really when, for me, those transcendent theatrical experiences or when that happens. Yeah, and there and stories are how we make sense of our lives, yeah, right? I mean, I think yeah. as humans that's we're always kind of trying to figure out what is my story? What is how do I make sense of the world mm-hmm. as a story? How do I make sense of my own experience as a story? And sometimes when we get really stuck, 
I think it's partly because we can't make sense of the story. That's, you know, we get of like, what? This doesn't add up. I can't form a narrative that makes any sense to me out of this. So I just can't get out of thinking about it or right. repeating the same mistake. You know, I think that stories have an incredible power to create really subtly to create major cultural shifts. And I think TV and film are actually much better at this in our present day. Well, they've certainly got, they've flooded the market, really. Right. They've entered the home, which is you don't have to go to the temple to get it, right? Yeah. And actually, that is part of why I personally almost never do traditional theater anymore, is that I feel like, and this was part of the very founding of Out of Hand 20 years ago, is that we realized from the beginning that we would never be able to compete with film and television right. for star power or budget size or, or you know quality. Or it, in, yeah. You can provide things to audiences so much cheaper and faster and they don't have to leave their couch. So if we couldn't do that anyway, then we wanted to really harness the intimate experience that you can have by being noticeably in the Mm -hmm. same room with other people, with Mm -hmm. other audience members and with artists. And so we've always created events that require audience members to interact with each other and with performers and often blur the line between performer and audience member, because that's what we've got that film and TV don't have. We're in a room. We get to literally breathe together. We can talk to each other. We can break bread together. So let's always do those the things. The fourth wall doesn't exist, so you don't have to break it. It's exactly. not even there. Yes. Yeah. And right. so that's, you know, one of the hallmarks of Out of Hands work is that we don't want anyone to ever come to one of our events, sit in the dark, and then leave without having talked to anybody except maybe the person who took your ticket. Like there yeah. always has to be meaningful interaction built yeah. into the experience. Ariel Fristo on AIJCast. You can find out more about her and Out of Hand Theater at Out of Hand Theater. That's E-R- Com. On our next episode, part two of our conversation with Ariel Fristo. AIJCast is truly made possible through the support of listeners like you. It is you who makes our work feasible. So please, please, please do take just a moment and go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says support. And we do love to interact with you on social media. We are there on many, many of the things where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the somewhat aromatic Al Mudif, who really doesn't like our budgeting process. What? This doesn't add up. And I'm your host, Marthame Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, create some beauty of your own, And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, justice and peace.